Well, good morning, Getwell. It's an honor and privilege to be with you this morning as we continue in our series, Justified People, how God uses ordinary people like you and me to accomplish things that are anything but ordinary. My name is Greg Meek. I'm pastor to Families and Next Gen, and uh, I am so excited as we continue in this message today. Uh, once again, I know you heard the advisory that Jesse gave at the beginning, but we still like to give that. Our, our subject today is on lot, and there will be some mature content in this. And so we would ask that if you have any children in here that are fifth grade or under, we would invite you uh, and suggest that you take them to uh, kid ministry today. Um, we're not going to um, soft play scripture. We're going we're gonna to be in the Word. So, we see that the Scripture, particularly the Old Testament, is full of stories that are recounting the amazing and often miraculous work of God in the lives of ordinary people. Now, these people are often called the heroes of our faith, and they were just ordinary people like us, but like us, they're more than ordinary to God. These Old Testament heroes were actually pursued by God in his grace and in his power. And last week, Jonathan walked us through the life of Gideon and showed us that through Gideon, how we can live a life of faith over fear. But this week is a little different. We're going to be talking about the life of Lot. So let's take a look at the story of Lot. You see, the story of Lot is in the book of Genesis. It is intertwined with the story of Abraham. We understand that Lot is Abraham's nephew. It was Abraham's brother, uh, Haran, who died, and that Abraham was at that time without children, and Lot was fatherless. So Abraham somewhat adopted Lot and he looked out for them, him. We know that when Abraham was called by God to go to Canaan, that scripture tells us he took Lot with him. Even then, later on, when we see that uh, they left Canaan for Egypt because of a famine, we see that Abraham list, that Lot's listed with Abraham all the way to Egypt. And after Pharaoh sends them away from Egypt, Lot was with him. So let's begin. There's going to be a lot of scripture today, just to let you know. We're going to be camped out in Genesis mostly. You may want to write some scripture down on the back of your bulletin if you have a pen. Just a warning, if our system crashes, keep reading. So uh, it, it did that first service, but we kept going, so that's okay. So let's look at Genesis 13, uh, verse 1. So Abram went up from Egypt, he and his wife, and all that he had, and Lot went with him into the Negev. Now, once again, we're going to see two words. We're going to see the word Abram, and we're going to see the name Abraham. They are the same person because we know that Abram was the original name, but we have to get all the way to chapter 17 before we see that God changes his name to Abraham. Probably for simplicity purposes, I'm going to be saying Abraham a lot more than Abram, but you know it's the same person, okay? So we read in this story 
that Abraham and Lot both prospered. They were very rich in livestock. They were rich in silver and gold. And the land that they came to, called the Negev, could not support the herds and the livestock uh, and all the tents that they had. So we see that there was strife also between the herdsmen of Abraham and the herdsmen of Lot. So let's pick up in Genesis 13, verse 5. And Lot, who went with Abram, also had flocks and herds and tents, so their land could not support both of them of the dwelling together. For their possessions were so great that they could not dwell together. And there was strife between the herdsmen of Abraham's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. Then Abram said to Lot, Let there be no strife between you and me, and between your herdsmen and my herdsmen, for we are kinsmen. Is not the whole land before you? Separate yourself from me. If you take the left hand, I will go to the right. Or if you take the right hand, then I will go to the left. And Lot lifted up his eyes and saw that the Jordan Valley was well watered everywhere like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt, in the direction of Zoar. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So Lot chose for himself all the Jordan Valley, and Lot journeyed east. Thus they separated from each other. Abram settled in the land of Canaan, while Lot settled among the cities of the valley and moved his tent as far as Sodom. Now the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. You see, Abraham recognized this conflict between him and Lot that was developing and offered a chance for them to separate, and Lot chose the land for his herds. Now here we begin to get a picture of the character of Lot, even though we really don't know his motive. There seemed to be possibly a selfishness or a greediness spirit evident in Lot and total selflessness in Abraham. The Jordan Valley is described like the Garden of the Lord, like the Garden of Eden, and like Egypt, very lush and fertile. And that's what Lot wanted for his future, the potential to increase his herds and his flocks, and the potential was there. So we see that there's this allure possibly of wealth, of power, of pleasure, maybe status, but what's so interesting, in this Middle Eastern culture, there's not the respect for the elderly that you would have normally seen. Under, under the Middle Eastern culture, a younger person would have deferred to his elder and given Abraham the chance to choose first before him, but Lot doesn't. He chooses ahead of Abraham. There seems to be an attraction with the cities of the valley, the culture and particular Sodom, which is described as wicked. Now, once again, let's, let's remember what Paul says. We do not fight flesh and blood. We fight what? The spiritual forces, the powers of the air. This is what we're battling. It is a spiritual battle that we are in. And let's don't forget that Satan and his evil forces will go after an and use an ungodly culture around us to draw us, to lure us to adapting and adopting the ways of the culture around us. And we see that in this story. 
<clears throat> now, if we read on, we're going to skip around, but if we read in Genesis 14, we found that four kings in the cities in the valley, including Sodom, Sodom and Gomorrah, they take Lot captive. And notice now in this part, Lot is not living on the edge. He's now living in Sodom. When Abraham hears about it, he decides to do something about it. Why? Because he's deeply cared for Lot. It was his nephew. He deeply cared enough to risk his own men to pursue the armies that took Lot, and he was successful. He rescued Lot, and Scripture says he rescued with only 318 men. So what are these characteristics we're starting to see in Lot? Well, he seems to have a lack of courage, a lack of faith. There's no record that Lot did anything. He's now living in the city, the lush and fertile Jordan Valley that he wanted for his herds is now behind him. He's made some radical choices. He's no longer a herdsman. He's now living in Sodom and Gomorrah. And the reason for him separating for Abraham is not even there anymore. We're told in Genesis 15 that God then makes a covenant with Abraham, tells him he'll have a son, and it's through him all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And we don't hear this about Lot again till we get to Genesis 18, where God is talking about Sodom and Gomorrah. In Genesis 18, verse 20, it says, The Lord said, Because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great and their sin is grave, very grave, I will go down to see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me. And if not, I will know. Well, God knew what was going on in Sodom. He knew already. But we're going to pick up in Genesis 18, beginning in verse 22. Let's read together. So the men turned from there and went toward Sodom, but Abraham still stood before the Lord. Then Abraham drew near and said, Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there are 50 righteous within the city. Will then you then sweep away the place and not spare it for the 50 righteous who are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing to put the righteous to death with the wicked, so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be that from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? And the Lord says, if I find at Sodom 50 righteous in the city, I will spare the whole place for their sake. Now notice Abraham's question and his request. Will you destroy the righteous with the wicked. What if there are 50 persons? You know, what does this reveal about God's character? We know that God is holy. The sin of Sodom was so grave and deserved to be and had to be destroyed. We know that God is merciful. For 50 righteous people, God would have spared the city. God is long-suffering. If we keep reading, we see that Abraham kept reducing the number all the way to 10. And God agreed if there were 10 there, he wouldn't destroy the city. Some people used to think that Abraham is bargaining with God, but he's not. God already knows who's righteous in that city. 
and it's, it's very few. Let's pick up in Genesis 19, verse 1. The two angels came to Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. When Lot saw them, he rose to meet them and bowed himself with his face to the earth and said, My lords, please turn aside to your servant's house and spend the night and wash your feet. Then you may rise up early and go on your way. And they said, No, we will spend the night in the town square. I want you to remember that phrase, that we will spend the night in the town square. But he pressed them strongly, so they turned aside to him and entered his house, and he made them a feast and baked them unleavened bread, and they ate. See, Lot was sitting in the gate when these angels, these men, they call it, but it's angels. When you go to the Hebrew, it is a malach, which is an angel when these angels arrived. And scripture doesn't tell us that Abraham knew they were angels. They actually come to his house and eat with him. And the term sitting at the gate carries a connotation of that culture of the day of being in some sort of position of power or influence. Elders in those, in those times often sat at the city gates, but we don't know what type of, of position uh, Lot had. Lot shows, though, generous hospitality and concern for these angels. Let's keep reading in verse 4. But before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both young and old, all the people to the last man surrounded the house. And they called to Lot, where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may know them. Lot went out to the men at the entrance and shut the door after him and said, I beg you, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. Behold, I have two daughters who have not known any man. Let me bring them out to you and do to them as you please. Only do nothing to these men, for they have come under the shelter of my roof. But they said, stand back. And they said, this fellow came to sojourn and he has become the judge. Now we will deal worse with you than with them. Then they pressed hard against the man Lot and drew near to break the door down. But the men reached out their hands and brought Lot into the house with them and shut the door. And they struck with blindness the men who were at the entrance of the house, both small and great, so that they wore themselves out groping for the door. Now, while Lot showed kindness to these strangers, the young and old men of the city actually did opposite. Their intent was to do more than harm. The word know here, they wanted to know these men. That word in Hebrew literally has a sexual connotation. They wanted to sexually molest or rape these two men that they didn't know were angels. It is a sexual nature. Look how Lot answers them. He understands this because he says, don't act so wickedly. And here's what Lot does. Yet he understands this and then he offers his only daughters up and tells them to do to them as they please. But they didn't want the daughters. You see, 
Here's, here's the problem. The sin, the main sin of Sodom and Gomorrah was a homosexual sin. And no matter what our culture today tries to spin this in the terms of, oh, they were just not being hospitable. I promise you God didn't wipe out a town with fire and brimstone over inhospitability. This had to be something greater. Listen, if we compare Scripture with Scripture, let's go to Jude chapter 1, verse 7. It says, Jude says, Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. This phrase, unnatural desire, in Greek is heterosarkos. It literally means strange, freakish, strong sexual feeling or appetite towards somebody of the opposite sex. Sodom was evil. It was wicked. And if you really want to go and dig deeper into the sin of Sodom... You can go into the book. It's an apocryphal book. It's not in our canon of Scripture, but it's the book of Jasher. It was found also in the Dead Sea Scrolls. It's, it is talked about in Joshua, 2 Samuel, and it, it tells about it when you go look that up. But Scripture talks about the book of Jasher. And in that, we get a context that we don't see in regular parts of Scripture. Because it says here, remember I told you we were talking about the town square? In, Jasher says that in Sodom, in the town square was literally a bed. And when sojourners would come into the town, if it was male, they would take them and try to forcibly rape them. If it was females... They might kill them. There's, there's a story in Jasher of actually throwing a woman in fire, but they would rob, they would rape, and they would pillage. There was nothing good about Sodom and Gomorrah. And so here we have Lot living now in Sodom, calling these men of Sodom, my brothers. And they responded, well, you came to sojourn with us. You're not even really one of us. You're an alien. You're a stranger. Now you're going to judge us? See, Lot stood up to those people and refused to comply with their demands, yet he's offering his daughters in exchange for it. Let's keep reading in verse 12. Then the men said to Lot, have you anyone else here? Sons-in-law, sons, daughters, or anyone you have in the city, bring them out of this place. For we are about to destroy this place because the outcry against its people has become great before the Lord. And the Lord has sent us to destroy it. So Lot went out and said to his sons-in-law who were to marry his daughters. The culture in those days, if you are betrothed, you're still considered married. You just didn't have the final act. We find that with, with Mary and Joseph before the birth of Jesus. But his sons-in-law, who were to marry his daughters, up, get out of this place, for the Lord is about to destroy this city. But he seemed to his sons-in-laws to be jesting. 
Now, the angels tell Lot, we're here for one particular reason, and that's to destroy this place. Lot's daughters had these, they were engaged to these two men, and these men didn't believe Lot. It seems Lot's sincere warning to them just fell on deaf ears. They were unwilling to believe that that could be true and actually thought Lot must be joking. I mean, here he is. He lacks credibility and believability of his to his soon-to-be sons-in-law. Do you think that Lot really believed in himself? Let's keep reading. Verse 15. As morning dawned, the angels urged Lot, saying, Up, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, lest you be swept away in the punishment of the city. But he lingered. So the men seized him. These angels seized him and his wife, his two daughters, by the hand, the Lord being merciful to him. And they brought him out and set him outside the city. And as they brought them out, one said, Escape for your life. Do not look back or stop anywhere in the valley. Escape to the hills, lest you be swept away. And Lot said to them, Oh no, my lords, behold, your servant has found favor in your sight, and you have shown me great kindness in saving my life, but I cannot escape to the hills, lest the disaster overtake me and I die. Behold, this city near enough, there is a city near enough to flee to, and it is a little one. It's the city of Zoar. Let me escape there. Is it not a little one? And my life will be saved. And he said to them, the angel, Behold, I grant you this favor also, that I will not overthrow the city of which you have spoken. Escape there quickly, for I can do nothing until you arrive there. Therefore, the name of the city was called Zoar. What do we see Lot here? He lingered. He lingered. The angels had to physically grab him and his two daughters and wife and drag them out of the city. And he argues with them. I can't go to the mountains. I want to go to the city of Zoar instead. See, I think Lot was actually reluctant to leave Sodom when it came down to it. He didn't want to leave it. He had become, even in the evil, he had become comfortable. But God shows incredible patience and mercy. The angels take them, lead them outside the city. They explain they've got to flee and that they cannot do something to the city until Lot's out of there. God has specific instructions. Don't look back and don't stop. God requires obedience. Verse 23. The sun had risen on the earth when Lot came to Zoar. Then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah sulfur and fire from the Lord out of heaven. And he overthrew those cities and all the valley and all the inhabitants of the cities and what grew on the ground. But Lot's wife behind him, she looked back and she became a pillar of salt. And Abraham went early in the morning to the place where he had stood before the Lord. And he looked down toward Sodom and Gomorrah, toward the land 
all the land of the valley. And he looked and behold, the smoke of the land went up like the smoke of a furnace. You see, God destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah just as he promised he would do. Lot's wife disobeyed. She looked back. She was turned into a pillar of salt. And this weak, wicked, evil city had been eradicated off the face of the earth. Sin has to be dealt with, and God dealt with it. Verse 29, so it was that when God destroyed the cities of the valley, God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow when he overthrew the cities in which Lot had lived. Folks, here's something I don't want you to miss today. If you take nothing away, understand this. God remembered Abraham and then rescued Lot. It was because of Abraham that Lot was saved. His care for him, his love for him, and his prayers for him. You would think that Lot being plucked out of this fire and brimstone would make him a changed man, though, wouldn't you? Maybe not. Let's look at the rest of Lot's story. Verse 30. Now Lot went up out of Zoar and lived in the hills with his two daughters, for he was afraid to live in Zoar. So he lived in a cave with his two daughters. And the firstborn said to the younger, Our father is old, and there is not a man on earth to come into us after the manner of all the earth. Our, our future husbands or our husbands are dead. Come, let us make our father drink wine, and we will lie with him that we may preserve offspring for our father. So they made their father drink wine that night, and the firstborn went in and lay with her father. He did not know when she lay down or when she arose. The next day, verse 34, the firstborn said to the younger, Behold, I lay last night with my father. Let us make him drink wine tonight also. Then you go in and lie with him that we may preserve offspring from our father. So they made their father drink wine that night also, and the younger arose and lay with him. He did not know when she lay down or when she arose. Thus both the daughters of Lot became pregnant by their father. The firstborn bore a son and called his name Moab. He is the father of the Moabites to this day. The younger also bore a son and called his name Ben-Nami. He is the father of the Ammonites to this day. You see, Lot ended up named Zoar, and it was not what he expected. He ended up in the hills where the angels had told him to go in the first place. To he ended up living in a cave with his daughters. And think about this. When Lot separated from Abraham, he was a wealthy man, successful. Lots of herds of flock and sheep and goats. Lots of potential. Yet years later, based on a series of choices, Lot lost everything except his two daughters. And yet, then he has an incestuous relationship with them. And we get two sets of groups of people, the Moabites and the Ammonites, that come from that. But see, here's the beauty in this. Even in these bad situations, God is always there to redeem. Always. 
Because years later, we see a woman named Ruth who is a Moabite. And we get the story of Ruth and Naomi going back to Bethlehem and she becoming part of God's family. We know in the end that she was the great-grandmother of King David and in the lineage of Jesus. God's always redeeming. So what is it? What is it that we need to take away from this story of Lot? Here's the first thing. Be aware of the sin in your life. You see, most of us Christians, we don't intend on ending up in Sodom and Gomorrah, do we? That's not our intent. Lot didn't. He never intended to ultimately make that his home, and he certainly didn't intend to be included in its judgment. But... Like Lot, many Christians today are so attracted to the world and the culture that they make a modern-day Sodom and Gomorrah as close to their home as possible. And if they're honest, they end up identifying as much with the world as they do with the people of God. Here's point two. You will never drift into spiritual maturity, but you can easily drift into ungodliness. You will never just simply drift into spiritual maturity, but you can easily, easily drift into ungodliness. Are you trying to get as close as you can to the world without becoming of it? Just with Lot, there is a progression of sin in our life, and it starts with loving the world, and it ends up in destruction of your life. And you probably likely never see it coming. See, here's the deal. Living for Jesus, folks, is an uphill battle. He told us it was. When he said, in this life you will have trouble, but take care, I have overcome the world, he's not just saying words. It is an uphill battle because we are constantly going against the current. We're going against everything that the world is pulling us away from him toward in the other direction. Because this means if we are not actively fighting for our faith, walking with Jesus, we're drifting the wrong way. The harsh reality of all of this is this. Judgment is real, and it's coming. Hebrews 9.27 says, And just as it is appointed for man to die once, after that comes judgment. There is a judgment day for all of us. The beauty of it is, if we are in Christ, we're judged according to Jesus, not us. But if we're not of Christ, we're judged according to what we have done. It's a day of reckoning. And not only like Lot, if you are in Christ, you are coming more and more indistinguishable from, from, I mean, if you're not in Christ, you're becoming more and more indistinguishable from Sodom. And the problem is, as we drift into that culture, we get in these habits that we never even, ever warn the people in Sodom about the judgment that we know is coming. 
because it's just too hard to talk about. I'd just soon not worry about it. You know, maybe you're too embarrassed. You don't want to be seen as a radical or an extremist for Christ. But here's a newsflash, people. The gospel is radical. It's radical. It's life-changing. It's saving. Because judgment is coming. Jesus didn't come into this world to make us happy. He came to save us from our sins. And only those found in Christ will be saved. So if you believe that, and I hope you do, how can you not be in the business of telling everybody you know about this all the way in your life? I mean, you, you, you walk with friends who you know are not in Christ, and the end comes, and judgment day comes, and what are you going to say to them? If you've never spoken about Jesus or warned them, how do you even call this your friend? How much do you have to hate somebody not to warn them? See, our church, not this church, but church, the global church, particularly in the 20th century, has a history of just not wanting to walk alongside people in their sin. It says, you need to get yourself right, and then you can come in here and be part of our club. See, that's like watching somebody that's drowning, and you're standing on the sideline of the water waving at them instead of throwing them a life vest. Judgment is truth, but we, church, hold that truth in tension with grace. Simply telling someone they're drowning does them no good. They're already drowning. You've got to get involved in their life somehow and show them the Jesus that we all know. Jesus did this. When he walked with everybody before he died on the cross, he's walking in them in their sin. And he walked with them. He loved them. And people eventually started seeing him for who he was. And he does this today with us, and so should we. Here's what Paul has two verses I want to look at. 1 Corinthians 6, 9 and 10. This is what Paul says. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Unrighteous is somebody that's not saved by Jesus. Just let that sentence resonate with you. The unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. And then he gives his list of the unrighteous. If you're not in Christ, do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. That's a long list, isn't it? He keeps going. In Galatians, he adds to it. Galatians 5. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality. He hits those first. Idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you as I warned you before that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. 
Who doesn't find themselves somewhere in this list? Because none of us, Paul says, none of us are good. None of us is righteous, not one. We look at our works and think we've done something. We haven't done anything. We're just a wretched sinner. And I can stand up here. I'm not, I'm not saying I'm any better than anybody else because Lord knows if you knew what went through my mind sometime, that was enough to keep me out of heaven. Seriously. I don't have to do anything but think. That's how wretched we are, but for Jesus. You see, what these verses tell us is this. There is no salvation without repentance. Folks, you have to turn from your sin. You can't keep one foot in the world and one with Jesus. You can't live just the way you want to live and claim Christ on one hand and expect salvation. To become what no one else is becoming, you have to do what no one else is doing. Church, we're called to be different. And if you don't think we're different than the world, something's wrong. Your difference is living a life in Jesus and not embracing whatever sin you have and claiming, now that is how God made you. Do you hear that? The world tells us differently today, doesn't it? I'm just living how God made me. And if you don't believe that, then you're not loving me. You know, I find it amazingly fascinating. I love history. I really do. And history, when we go back in it, is frightening sometimes. The Hebrew people... Their original calendar, they didn't even have names of the months of the calendar. It was just the first month, and they started in the spring. First month, second month, third month, and they went around. That's all they had. God just says in the first month, second month. They go into exile into Babylon, and guess what? They start picking up ways of the pagans. They come back, and they start naming their months. Instead of the first month, second month, they start naming their months. The month of June is now on the Hebrew calendar to this day, the month of Tammuz. Guess what? Tammuz is a pagan god. And if you go look the story of the, of, of the, of the pagan god, Tammuz was the lover of Ishtar, who in another culture was called Ashtoreth, which we read about in the Old Testament. And she was the goddess of sexuality and sexual perversion. And she sends her, her lover, Tammuz, to the underworld, and she mourns for him this whole month. And, you know, when Paul says we're not fighting flesh and blood, we're fighting the spiritual forces, I don't think it's an accident that we're now in the month of Tammuz, and it's the month of June, and here's what do we deal with. It's the month of pride. And Proverbs says pride goes before a fall. People are shaking their fist at God every day and says, look at me. And God says, I see you. And you need redemption. Because they're saying, embrace who you are, take pride in it. But go back for those that don't know Jesus and read the list of who will not inherit the kingdom of God. See, God did not make you a sinner. You're, you, he didn't do anything to make you a sinner. We did that on our own. We did that on our own. 
You're either going to continue to live in this sin and this pride and whatever it is, or either you're going to repent, you're going to turn your way, turn to Jesus for your salvation. There's no option. It's one or the other. So how do we do this? How do we walk with people in this? This is so important. Finally, be an Abraham to the lots in your life. See, there's one reason that God saved Lot and his family. Abraham had prayed for them. Lot didn't deserve rescue. He wasn't special. Somewhere back there was a man, an individual, who loved him, took care of him, and prayed for him, and walked through life with him. For, for God's sake, and for God's sake, Abraham prayed and God saved Lot. He sent his angels to literally pull him out of Sodom to safety and church. I must still tell you, whoever is your family, your friends, your inner circle that's struggling with whatever of these list of sins, because I'm not going to hierarchy anyone over the other. There's no reason to. We love to, in the church, like to give a hierarchy, but it's sin. You've got to pray. You've got to pray for these people, and you've got to walk in life with them in their mess. And it is a mess, but you've got to do it. Why? Because otherwise, you're just watching them drowned. Church, we don't have to be a lot. We don't have to live in Sodom. And anybody that's in our circle of influence doesn't either. And with Jesus, we don't. We are plucked out of the fire of destruction into eternal life forever. Look at what Paul says in Corinthians 6, verse 11. He says, and such were some of you. I wish he'd have said all of you, because I think we are. And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified. How in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Church, there's no, nothing else to do. Go be an Abraham to the lots in your life. Let's pray. Father God, we just come before you now. And I just pray for everyone here, everyone listening online. Whatever is holding us back, whatever sin we are dealing with, even if we're on the edge or living in Sodom, we know you will redeem it. I just pray that you give every person in here that walks with you the boldness to walk into the life, step into the life of someone they knew that or know that needs you. That they just won't be complacent and watch their family, their friends, their whoever drowned. It doesn't have to be this way. Holy Spirit, ignite a fire into our church that we may be the beacon that we can show we can walk with people in their sin 
and still love you and show you to a broken world. I just pray if anybody's struggling or whatever they're dealing with, let them bring it to the rails today and give to you. But more importantly, help us be Abraham's to our lots in our life. We pray these things in your holy name, Jesus, and through the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen.